1 Timothy, but uh, this morning we're dealing with just one topic at the end of chapter 5, and so it's a little more of a topical sermon than preaching through each uh, section in, in Scripture in this letter. I do want to mention that uh, you might want to keep your Bibles handy because we'll look at a number of different passages. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, how can you glorify God? Two, what might people think of you when you do that? Three, when we do good works that God calls us to do, we should, and this is choose one of the three, A, brag about it to others, B, feel very proud of ourselves, or C, thank God that he is at work in our lives. First Timothy chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 17 so you have some context, but our main focus will actually be the very last half of the last verse. So pay special attention to verse 25b. This is the word of God. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, cannot, uh, that are not cannot remain hidden. And there ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the power of it, the truth of it. Lord, we thank you for the fact that your word is living and active, and you've already spoken to us through the reading of your word this morning. But we pray that you would continue to speak to us, though indirectly, through your preacher. So we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit in a special way to help the preacher and also all of us who are here this morning. As we come to you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would guess that there's no one here this morning. In fact, I'd be very surprised if there was anyone here this morning who claimed that they could be reconciled to God through good works, through doing good deeds, that salvation is somehow based on our ability to obey or our goodness. I would be very surprised if there was anyone here this morning that thinks that their salvation is based on that, I would love to sit down and speak with you about that. Uh, that I would have to speak to you, first of all, about your sinfulness and the impossibility of that. That would be the unpleasant part, but I'd also speak to you about the amazing grace of God, that any sinner can be saved from their sins. But to think that we would ever be good enough to not commit sins against God, and that we would be so good that we would do all that God commanded us to do would be impossible. 
I'll just give you a couple verses from the Apostle Paul, Romans 3.20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, by the same token, I would say that if you truly are a Christian, then you have good works in your life. You have good deeds in your life. Your obedience is part of the evidence of the fact that you're saved to begin with. Now, first, we have to think about the context of what Timothy's dealing with here. He's mostly focused on being very careful in the way that we choose leaders. And he says, if there's no notable sins, then you can't choose those leaders. And, and if their sins are obvious, then don't even think about appointing them as officers. And even if their sins are not obvious now, someday they will be obvious. They will be exposed. I think that, to put it in our terms, it's don't miss the obvious. Don't make a dumb mistake. And put an obvious sinner in a place of authority in the church. Um, there's no perfect system. Some sins, again, are obvious. Some will be known later, but all will be known. As I emphasized last time, a couple of times, verse 21 puts things in perspective. Paul's saying to Timothy, you're doing these things in the presence of God, but it's a good reminder to all of us that all that we do is in the presence of God, verse 21, and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. And so the whole spiritual realm is observing our behavior, but we also need to remember that, other, that people are observing our behavior as well. Well, then we looked at a broader application, right? We dealt with the fact that there are principles in this passage that don't just apply to leaders, but to all people. And so sin is a concern, but also the issue of good deeds is a concern. Today, we're going to deal with a personal concern of having evident good works in our lives. That might sound strange to us at first because as a Protestant church and as a Reformed church, we don't tend to emphasize good deeds that much. And I think a part of that is because it should be a natural outflowing, or maybe better said, a supernatural outflowing of our being saved. That it's not this, this thing that we have to get in order to win favor with God, but Favor with God has been accomplished, as we'll be reminded of in just a moment again, but that there are things that flow out of our being in Christ. Today I want to keep it simple because simple obedience is a powerful testimony to a devoted life. Uh, there should be compelling evidence in our lives that we belong to Jesus Christ, that our lives are not, no, not under the reign of darkness anymore, not under the reign of sin, but that we are now in Christ and that should be evident in our lives. First of all, it's fruit, it's the fruit of God's mercy. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I think that anyone who's saved truly enjoys the first part of what Paul says here. Even though we have to reckon with who we were outside of Christ, we definitely appreciate grace. So Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins 
in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so saved by grace, new life in Christ, but, but saved and recreated to do the good works and the good deeds that God has prepared for us ahead of time to do. Remember uh, what you already know, but remember that your salvation also is going to be evidenced in the way you live your life. Think about what we were outside of Christ. You may not have been an outright, outrageous, wretched person. You might have actually been a pretty good person, but, but your, your whole bent in life was under the reign, as we read here, of the evil one, of the prince of the power of the air. You're under the reign of your own sin. You've been brought out of that, and you're no longer under that reign. You're, you're freed in Christ, and now you're freed to obey Christ. Now, this might be a good place to mention, well, what about all those people, all those really good people outside of Christ that we know? What about them? We have to grant that there is common grace. It's a twisted image of God, but unbelievers can certainly do good things. Certainly do good things. In fact, sometimes, to our shame, there are non-Christians who are far more gracious, much kinder, much more benevolent than some of us are. Sometimes I find unbelievers very convicting when it comes to their disposition and their love for others and their care for others. We need to recognize that, that by common grace, <coughs> unbelievers can certainly do good things. Their good is appreciated, but it's not credited at all as righteousness. It's not to the glory of God, ultimately in Christ that is. Uh, but we can be thankful that man is not as evil as he can be and that he is actually able to do some good. We might call it social good as opposed to kingdom good. I think there is a big difference there. But now in Christ, now in Christ, Christ is at work in you. I want you to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I'm trying to string all these things together. And how this whole idea of good works or good deeds takes place in the life of a Christian. Beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may, be, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and, and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy and that your joy may be full. And so uh, we are connected to Christ, indwelt by Christ. He's the living vine. We can do nothing without him. And yet we are to own the good works that we're called to do as well. But we recognize our inability outside of Christ to have legitimate good works before the Lord. At one point when Jesus is speaking to a crowd, a crowd gathers around and they ask him a question. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' answer is, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So that's the first work, and it's faith, and even our faith comes from God. But after that flows a life submitted to the lordship of Christ. That's when we become salt and light. Jesus doesn't say you will be salt and light. He says you are salt and light. Turn with me. You're still in Matthew. Turn with me. Um, you're not in Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 13. We love the Sermon on the Mount. We love the Beatitudes, and here's what Jesus says in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's not saying that we do good works to boast before men. We are due to do good works and do what God's called us to do because, first of all, we belong to him. We want to be good children of him, but also because it's a witness to the world around us. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. Here's how Paul describes God's people to Titus. This describes us. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who are zealous for good works. I don't know if I can describe myself that way. Have you described yourself that way, that you're zealous to do the will of God, to do good works by the grace of God? That's where we want to be. That's where we want to be. So again, you're saved by God. You're saved apart from yourself. You're set apart for the good works that God has called you to do that will bring him glory, that will benefit others, and that will help you to grow in grace. 
but we have to remember that it's God who defines the good works. Scripture defines good works. If you read your Bible, you'll know what's required of man. We have to make sure that we're not letting the world define what's good and what's bad. I'm not going to get into specifics, but again, the Bible is clear on what's acceptable in God's sight, what's offensive in his sight, and what he requires of man. And so we need to pursue those things that God has called us to do. Can't emphasize enough. Salvation is by grace alone through faith. However, it's striking how much Scripture references good works. Think about the commandments simply. Now, most of the commandments are negative, but take the Ten Commandments and flip them around and think of the positive pursuits of the things that God has commanded us to do. There are many things for us to do. There's plenty of things for us not to do, many things for us to do. Think about Jesus teaching so many times, emphasizing obedience, summed up in love for God and love for neighbor as children of God. James hammers the issue. You say that you have faith, right? You say that you have faith, but you don't have works. Turn with me to James chapter 2. Got to flip back in your Bible a little bit. You'll come to James, James 2, beginning in verse 14. James taught well. I won't even read the whole section, but pick up in verse 14, James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he goes on in the same vein. And so again, emphasize again and again, salvation is by grace alone through faith. It's not of yourselves, but, but good works are set out for us. Good works are required for us. And here's something that, that might rattle some of us, but here's the judgment text. I want you to notice what Jesus emphasizes. Matthew 25, and I believe this is the last passage I'll actually have you turn to, Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. Remember, there are many who profess Christ. There are many who say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says that he doesn't know them because they didn't obey. But here, when Jesus talks about the judgment, it's striking what he emphasizes. There are two things. There are some who think that they're doing the will of God who aren't. But the second thing is that the ones who are the sheep doing God's will are almost unaware they were just doing what Christians are supposed to do. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I won't even read the next half because it's the flip side. It's the goats who actually missed it all the time because they were not doing the works that God had given ahead of time for us to do. And so scripture weighs very heavily on the obedient Christian life. And the obedient Christian life does not go unnoticed. I've already mentioned that God is witness, Jesus is witness, the angels are witness, and the people around us are witnesses. Witnesses. And I guess the question I ask myself and I ask all of us, is our faith conspicuous? Does it stand out? Are we marked as Christians, not only by our profession, not only by what we say, and we're often shy to be bold about saying that we're Christians, but is it clear to others that we belong to Christ by what we do? By what we do. Is it conspicuous? I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard it said many times. Is there enough evidence in your life? If Christianity was illegal, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you of anything? Is our faith conspicuous? Now that might sound like you have to do something extraordinary. Some grandiose thing for Jesus Christ. And some of us, some of you may be called to do something extraordinary for Christ sometime. A major sacrifice that you might have to make. But I think it's important for most of us to think about the ordinary. I have a friend who titled the sermon, Do Something Ordinary for God. And he was concerned that it wouldn't be an exciting, compelling title for his sermon to simply say, live faithfully the Christian life. Do something ordinary for God. Everyday life, a regular path of obedience, is actually in some ways very extraordinary. Are you an obedient Christian? Are you, are you putting off the things that are sinful in your life and are you pursuing the things that God's called you to do? Are you living the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is decorated, adorned with good deeds. What does that look like? Let me offer just a couple of things. First of all, unbending devotion to God. Uncompromising. That you wholeheartedly are devoted to the God of your salvation. That's number one. Number two, that you're intentionally obedient. That as Christians, we want to do God's will. We understand the struggle within ourselves. We understand that we still have this pull towards worldly things, the, the desires of our own hearts that often cause us to sin. But, but we really do and really should want to desire to love the things that God loves. So this intentional obedience. And then attached to that, being unashamedly Christian to finally learn what it means to cast aside all fear of man and fearlessly live for Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time being unassuming, 
unassuming because we recognize that we're only saved by grace, that we still have plenty of indwelling sin, unassuming because we're simply trying by the grace of God to do what God has called us to do as his children. In other words, you don't flaunt your good works as if you're really good. Big word out there is, is virtue signaling. We're not virtue signaling to the world. Look how good we are. Look at what we're doing. You should be like this. That's not what this is about. It's not a holier-than-thou attitude but it's humble obedience to Christ in all areas of our life. And at the same time, not hiding at all the fact that we belong to Jesus, that he's our king, and that we live for him. We're no longer our own, but we belong to our faithful Savior. And so the normal Christian life will have tangible evidence. People will be able to put their finger on something that they recognize as distinctly Christian. Again, God, Christ, and the angels see and people see. When people in the world look at us, do they see people who are just like everybody else in the world? I'm not talking about outward appearance. That may factor in some parts of it, but when people see us, when people see us, when they know us, I guess is better said, are we just like everyone else? Are we worse than some people? Are we just good religious people? Are we bad religious people? Or are we disciples of Jesus Christ who've taken up our crosses to follow him and obey him? People who have submitted every area of life to the lordship of Christ, striving to do what he's commanded us to do, living in a way privately and publicly that honors the God of our salvation. That's what it's all about in the end. See, that's what we were created for. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him. And that's, that was lost and damaged severely in the fall, but we've been recreated to glorify God with lives in submission to Christ, lives that point to the Lord, adorning the gospel. Does your life testify to the power of the gospel in your life? And have you won the right by your devotion to the Lord, by your intentional obedience, obedience to your unashamed Christianity, to your unassuming, humble struggle with sin, but your desire to obey? Does that, has that won you the right to witness to Christ? See, we're not fooling anybody. We're sinners, saved by grace. God sees, the angel sees, Jesus sees, people see. Admitting that we're sinners, living the Christian life, bearing witness to the power of the gospel. May it be that our good works would be evident. Some should be clearly evident. Others will be revealed later. But all to the glory of God. As far as witness, there's that simple bouncy song that I've adjusted a little bit. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be witnesses for Jesus than to trust and obey. I'll forgive the author's, I'll ask the author's forgiveness. But again, are we 
Are we compelling Christians? Is there evidence in our lives that Christ is being formed in us and that our lives are given to his glory? Unashamed to be a Christian, light and salt in this world to give him glory and to serve others to be good for our souls too. Let's pray. Lord our God, our first and foremost concern is that we are truly in Christ. Because outside of Christ, we know that there is no reconciliation to you. But our concern very much is that we glorify you with our lives. We know that in your mercy, by your mercy, and by your grace, you've saved us. But we know that in saving us, you've called us to obey and to pursue the good works that you've prepared ahead of time for us to do. Lord, so often we have a bent to go the other way. We're very careful, at least we should be, to put off sin that entangles us, to flee the temptations that ensnare us. But so often we forget that you've called us to pursue many things for your glory, to do many things for your glory. Simple obedience, simple love, simple kindness, simple mercy to others, bearing witness to the fact that you truly are at work in our lives, reflecting the glory of Christ, who perfectly obeyed in our place when we couldn't, who paid for all of our sins against you, but also fulfilled all righteousness that we could never fulfill in an eternity of trying to do what's right. Lord, may we glorify you, may we exalt Christ, and may through your Holy Spirit you help us to walk in your ways that are pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper, which does, in fact, remind us that Jesus fulfilled everything that needed to be fulfilled for us. Not only atoning for our sins, uh, the offenses that we've committed against God, but also fulfilling all the things that we're commanded to do, Jesus fulfilled all things with perfection. And the amazing thing is, is that he shares that with us. By his mercy, he shares his merits with us so that we can truly say that we are made righteous before God, not of ourselves, but through Christ Jesus. This table is for those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation and have confessed that he is Lord and Savior, have submitted your lives to him. If you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, we ask that you refrain from the table and that you consider your relationship with God, consider who Jesus is, and I would be happy to talk to any of you after the service if you're concerned about the condition of your soul. So would any of the elders who will be up here in just a few moments. We also ask that you would be members in good standing, connected in good standing to a Bible-believing church so that you're accountable. Uh, we believe that God has established his church on earth as a testimony to the presence of his kingdom. And God's people are to be a part of that outward appearance of his glorious kingdom here on earth. I'm going to read to you what was passed on to Paul by inspiration. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And after that, we'll have a time of silent prayer, and I'll ask the elders to come forward.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray together. Lord our God, first we thank you for the mercy that you show to sinners like us. And as we come to this table, we're certainly reminded of our sin, that the wages of sin was death, but the wages were fully paid through the death of our Savior Jesus. And so we come with sobriety and seriousness concerning our sin, but we also come with jubilant, jubilant praise to you because we know that our salvation has been won through what Christ, our Lord, has done. So as we partake of this table, we pray that you would feed our souls with this means of grace, that we would recognize the great salvation that has been won through our Lord. Minister to us, we ask, as we come to you in the name of our Savior, who was once dead, but who now lives and reigns and rules forever and ever. Amen. If I can have the elders come forward, please. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took one of the loaves of bread in the presence of the disciples and said, this is my body given for you.
as he instructs us through his living word, take and eat in remembrance of him. the same way after the supper Jesus took one of the cups and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood
And Jesus said, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, we have proclaimed the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and will do so until he comes. And may he come quickly. Amen. The closing hymn is Not What My Hands Have Done, 461 in the Trinity Hymnal, and we'll please stand when we sing.
Now receive the Lord's blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.